Welcome, friends. You are listening to the podcast for First Christian Church in Fort Myers, Florida. To learn more, join us online at fccfm.org. It is a blessing to be able to share God's Word with you today. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. To all of you worshiping with us online, we want to say welcome to FCC. To all of you joining us on campus, we are so glad to see your smiling faces in the room. It is good to gather together. Amen? You know, one of my favorite hobbies growing up was assembling model cars and model airplanes. Now, that's probably a lost art these days, but before video games were the predominant form of kids' entertainment, we did things like building models. I remember I did this big B-1 bomber model. Its wings were about 18 inches wide, and, and I did an F-14 Tomcat fighter that was a little bit smaller. And the airplanes, they were always easier because they didn't have hundreds and hundreds of tiny parts to put together. Now, the cars were harder. And just like I'm into cars today, I was into cars growing up. I was into the older muscle cars and the, the newer supercars. I put together a first-generation Mustang. I've put together a 60s Chevy Impala, a 60s Oldsmobile Starfire. I also put together a, a newer Lamborghini model. But I have to tell you, I wasn't very good at model building. And while my model airplanes always looked decent because you didn't have to paint them and they had fewer parts to assemble, my model cars always looked atrocious. In fact, I never put together a model car that I was proud of. There was always something wrong with them, whether it was with the the paint job or with the engine parts or with the wheel assembly or especially with the interior work. My cars always looked bad. And and there were two reasons my cars always look bad, my model cars. Two reasons you might even say are connected to my character. Number one, I wasn't very patient. Wasn't then, still not very patient now. And number two, maybe some of you can relate, I hate to follow directions. (laughs) I like to make my own rules. Find my own way. Figure things out on my own. And the thing is, if you're going to build nice model cars, then you have to have two things in your makeup. You have to be extremely patient, and you have to follow the directions. You have to be extremely patient because building models means you have to be willing to do five or ten minutes of work on your model car every day for months on end because you have to let the paint dry on one little part before attaching it to another little part or you have to let the glue dry on one little part before attaching it to another little part and so you do five minutes one day and you do ten minutes the next day and it takes months to assemble even a tiny little model car. Now, my friend Nick assembled this replica, exact replica, of my 1976 Corvette, which is a car I sold, sadly, before I moved to Fort Myers. But he made me a a model, did an incredible job. If you were to come up and look at this, you'd see he even stenciled letters on the tires. Took him a year to put this model together. Takes so much patience to build even one 
little model car. I gotta be careful with that because it's kind of fragile. It also takes willingness to follow the directions. I mean, some of these cars, they have hundreds of little plastic parts and they all have to go into a specific place with a specific purpose. And if you get any of them out of place, the whole model will be out of whack. And so if you ever buy a model car, and by the way, dads, it would be a wonderful thing for you to do with your kids. Great way to spend quality time. You can even teach them something about cars. But if you ever go out and buy a model car, it's going to come with plans, directions, step-by-step instructions on how to assemble the car, detailed directions with pictures and with words. It's kind of like buying a Lego set. And you have to follow the directions in detail or it will mess everything up. And I was always messing up my model cars because I didn't have the patience and I didn't like to follow directions. In fact, when I would get a model, it would be my goal to assemble the whole thing in a weekend. I wanted to complete it my own way. No patience, no good at following directions. That was me to a T. Anyone else relate? Anybody else like me? Well, this weekend I want to talk about following directions. Now, the word used in the Bible for following directions is obedience. And the words obey and obedience are used a lot in the Bible, 244 times to be exact. And it's a really important word in the Bible, but we hate this word. We hate the words obey and obedience. My kids hate it when I say to them, you know what? You just need to obey. And frankly, I hate the way it sounds. Once in a while, I'll be telling them to do something. They'll say, but why? And I'll, I don't feel like saying why. And so I'll say, you know what? You just need to obey. Because I said so. And then that rolls off my tongue. And even I hate the way it sounds. It sounds so, I don't know, oppressive. Freedom robbing. Contrary to free will offensive. We hardly even use this word anymore because we think it sounds so constricting, binding, harsh. I wonder this morning, would you accept a government that requires obedience? Not Floridians. (laughs) Would you work a job where your employer used the word obedience? (laughs) Doubt it. We, we associate obedience with all kinds of negative connotations, and yet over and over again in the Bible, the words obey and obedience are used repeatedly and with all kinds of positive connotations. For instance, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, God said this to Abraham. He said, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Why? You don't even want to say it, do you? (laughs) Because you have obeyed me. What brought God's blessing? Abraham's obedience. God directed Abraham. Abraham followed God's directions. He obeyed and God blessed Abraham and all the nations of the world, in fact, because of Abraham's obedience. Obedience to God brings blessing to us 
and to those around us. Well, today we're in week two of a sermon series we're really excited about. It's called Lemonade, How to Sweeten the Sour Seasons. This series is from the life of Elijah. It's in the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. And if you were here last week, then you've already been introduced to Elijah. If we had to pick the most important people in the Bible, we might say, well, there's Abraham and, of course, Moses and David and Elijah and Mary and John the Baptist and Peter and Paul. And, of course, at the top of that list by far is Jesus. But if we had to narrow that list to three figures, those three figures would probably be Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Now, there are several biblical themes connecting these men. For one, there are essentially three major miracle epics in the Bible. Now, when you realize the biblical narrative spans thousands of years, you also realize miracles weren't just happening every day and in every way. Now, there are certainly records of God interacting with his creation in in natural and supernatural ways throughout the Bible, but this idea of men and women performing miracles on behalf of God is not nearly as common, even in the Bible, as you might think. But there are three primary miracle epics in the Bible where particular men performed a cluster of miracles, and those three epics are Moses with the Exodus, Elijah against King Ahab, and Jesus and his disciples. And the miracles performed by these men were truly extraordinary. Each of them demonstrated God's supernatural power over nature, over the natural elements with controls over things like the rain and the sunshine, as well as multiplying food resources and even resurrecting the dead. Also, each of these three men, they were harbingers or proclaimers or declarers or bringers of God's justice, demonstrating God's total supremacy. Moses demonstrating God's supremacy over the many Egyptian gods. Elijah showing God's supremacy over the Canaanite gods, Baal and Asherah. Jesus over Satan and the demons and the Roman gods, but also over sin and death. Further, each of these three men, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, they all began their respective ministries in the wilderness. Moses hiding from Pharaoh, Elijah hiding from Ahab, and Jesus being tempted by Satan. And then in the gospel story of the transfiguration, two men appear from heaven to Jesus to give him final instructions leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. And the two men who appear to Jesus are Moses and Elijah. In fact, some of Jesus' own disciples wondered if Jesus was Elijah reincarnated. Check out Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the son of man? Who do the people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then there's this. Jewish tradition, not the Bible, but Jewish tradition taught that the body of Moses ascended to heaven after his death. Meanwhile, Elijah's life on earth ascended when he was taken to heaven, ended when he was taken to heaven, when he ascended, and Jesus, after his resurrection, ascended to heaven. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, they share all these different connections, which is interesting because we know something about Moses and, and we know more about Jesus, but we probably know very little about Elijah. And that's something we're changing 
with this series. So let me bring you up to speed on where we are in the story of Elijah. Elijah comes on the scene during the reign of King Ahab, the Israelite king. Now, Ahab was considered to be the most wicked king in the history of Israel. And Ahab was considered the most wicked king because he trivialized sin as no big deal, because he married the Sidonian princess Jezebel, and because he officially sanctioned the worship of the god Baal and the goddess Asherah in Israel. Now, Baal was the Canaanite god of rain, and Asherah was the Canaanite goddess of fertility. And we already learned all the crazy ways the Israelites, the Canaanites, and the Sidonians worshiped Baal and Asherah. We learned that last week, so thankfully we won't go there again today. But to show the true God's supremacy over Baal and Asherah, the gods of rain and fertility, Elijah declared there would be no rain in Israel until he said otherwise, which means no crops, which means a famine in the land. And so the Israelite people, they would seek Baal for rain, they would seek Asherah for crops, but Elijah, as the prophet of God, stopped the rain and stopped the crops to show the true God's supremacy over the false Canaanite gods, which made Elijah public enemy number one in Israel. This was a total repudiation of King Ahab, of Ahab's decision to make Baal worship official in Israel, of Ahab's wife Jezebel, who was a priestess of Baal and Asherah. And so what Ahab, King Ahab wants to do, he wants to capture Elijah, he wants to make him turn the rain back on, and then he wants to kill him. So he can't do it again. And so God tells Elijah to flee into the wilderness to the brook at the Kareth Ravine. There Elijah will hide and he will have water, and God, if you were here last week, you remember this, he promised to miraculously feed him by sending ravens to bring him food every morning and every evening to eat. Now, that's the summary of our discussion last week. And if you're new to the discussion, if this all sounds just crazy impossible to you, remember, it's one of the three major miracle epics in the Bible, miracle epics that demonstrate God's power over the natural elements as well as God's ability to provide and even multiply food. And so if you have your Bibles out, maybe you open up those Bible apps on your smartphones, our story picks up in 1 Kings chapter 17. First Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse seven, it says, some time later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. There I've directed a widow to supply you with food. Now I, I uh, this story, I just, it's one of those shrug shoulders, throw hands up. I kind of actually love this story. God sends Elijah into the wilderness to the Kareth Ravine. He's like, I'm gonna take care of you. There's a brook there. It's gonna give you water. But they've declared a famine, right? Their, their water only lasts so long. Perhaps he's, he's been alone near the brook for a year. The brook dries up due to the drought. And Elijah had to be thinking, are you kidding me? Right, God, now this I was born into the worst season in Israel's history, and, and then you asked me to stand up against Ahab, and, and, and so I did, and that put me on the run for my life, and, and then you take me out here to the wilderness and, and say I'm going to be taken care of, and, and, and now I run out of water, and now you're sending me out of my homeland altogether to the region of Sidon where my number one enemy's wife was born? Are you kidding me, God? 
we learned last week that the days of Elijah were some of the sourest days in Israel's history. And that Elijah's own life was filled with all kinds of sourness as well, with frustration and oppression, depression. He was depressed. You can see that as you read his story. He was isolated. He was alone. He even had suicidal thoughts. There were days when he said, I'd just be better off dead. And we talked about how in this series, we're discovering from the life of Elijah how we might sweeten our sour seasons. Last week, we said when life is sour, trust. In the next sermon, we're gonna say when life is sour, rest. The week after that, when life is sour, connect. But this week, our message for this week is when life is sour, obey. That's our big idea for today. When life is sour, obey. God told Elijah to declare a drought. Difficult as this calling was, Elijah obeyed. God told Elijah to flee to the Kareth Ravine. He knew he was gonna be all alone, but he went anyway. Elijah obeyed. God told Elijah to go at once to Zarephath, to the region of Sidon. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 10, says very simply, so he went. Verse 10, so he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and he asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I might have a drink? And she was going to get it. He called, and please bring me a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take it home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Outside of Israel, the region of Sidon, another hotbed of Baal worship, Elijah finds a widow who's a believer in the one true God. Further, she somehow knows Elijah to be a prophet of God. Now, the text doesn't tell us how she knows him. Perhaps it's maybe something he was wearing. Maybe they had prophet clothes. I don't know. Perhaps it's, it's because everybody already knew who Elijah was, that he was that well-known as a wanted man. Was it that hated in the land, even outside of Israel and Sidon? Did she know that this was the very man who turned off the rain, impoverishing her own family? She and her household are now near starvation because of what he did? She basically has enough flour and olive oil to make one last meal for her family. And now Elijah wants what's left of her food. The prophet of God is asking her to give away what little she has left. Kind of reminds me of the poor widow in Luke 21, whom Jesus praised for putting her two only remaining coins in the temple treasury. And so Elijah says to this woman, he says, give to God's work by giving Elijah food. And she objects. She's I believe in your God, Elijah, but I have nothing left to give you. I don't have any bread. All I have is this handful of flour and a little remaining olive oil. In 1 Kings 17, 13 and 14, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. What is 
Elijah asking this poor widow to do? He's asking her to trust and obey God. I mean, she has almost nothing left, but Elijah asks her to give it anyway. How do you do that? You do that by trusting and obeying God. She's on the verge of starvation, but he asks her to give away her food anyway. You say, how does someone do something like that? Well, the answer is by trusting and obeying God. She is in the sourest season of her life, and then Elijah asks her to do something that would seemingly make things much, much worse. And you wonder, how could one find the courage to do so? And the answer is by trusting and obeying God. So what will she do? Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family, for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Two themes emerge over and over again in the story of Elijah, and those two things are trust and obey. God asks Elijah to do difficult things, and Elijah trusts and obeys. Elijah asked the widow at Zarephath to do difficult things, and she trusts and obeys. Last week we said in in the sour seasons, trust. This week we say in the sour seasons, obey God. But then we have to ask the question, why? Why? Why obedience? Why is that such a big deal? Especially when for us, it's such an off-putting word. It's such a, a, a standoffish idea. Why obedience? What happens when we obey God? Real quickly, three things. Number one, when we obey God, we honor him. We're showing honor to him. In the Bible, honor is often connected with obedience. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says children who obey their parents are honoring them. Throughout scripture, the word honor means to hold as worthy, to respect, to see as valuable. And when we obey God, we are honoring him by showing him and showing others that he is worthy of our obedience, that we respect him and that we value his ways even over our own ways. I mean, let's be honest, it's hard to honor God and yet say at the same time, yeah, but God, I'm gonna do things my way. I like my ways better. I value my opinion, my experience, my wisdom more than yours. When we obey God, we honor him. In the same way, when we obey God, it's number two, we show our love for him. We demonstrate our love for him. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. This was the night he was arrested, John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, how do we show that love? If you love me, keep my commandments. Our obedience to God shows our love for him. Now, we often think, well, we show our our love for God by singing songs about him and by thinking good thoughts about him and feeling good feelings about him. But 1 John 2, verse 5 says, If anyone obeys his word, love for God is made complete in them. When we obey God, that's how we show the love that is in our heart for him. And then finally, when we obey God, this is number three, we place ourselves under his blessings. 
Like we said earlier, obedience to God brings blessings to us and to those around us. Though we often think obedience is a hindrance to our freedom, it's actually just the opposite. Obedience to God puts us in a place where we can thrive. You know, throughout the Bible, and particularly throughout the teachings of Jesus, we are given numerous instructions on how best to live. We're, we're given instructions, directions for how to treat our neighbors. Of course, that would include our coworkers and our fellow church members and the people in our community, even who are totally different from us. We're given directions on how to treat our neighbors. We're given directions on, on how to handle our enemies. We're given directions on how to respond to governments. We're given directions on how to treat our spouses. We're given directions on how to engage in sexuality. We're given directions for how to handle our money, how to manage our money. We're given directions for how to raise our families. We're given directions on how to connect with our faith community, with our church. We're given directions on how to handle almost all the stuff. And if you're like, well, what about the stuff the Bible doesn't speak to? Well, you just say, well, what would love have us do? But the Bible gives us directions on how to handle almost all the things. And so the question is, will we follow the directions? And sadly, most of us are a lot more like me putting together model cars than we are like Elijah obeying God or the widow at Zarephath obeying Elijah. We don't want to obey. We want to do things quickly and we want to do them our own way. But what happened when Elijah obeyed God even in the sour seasons? The answer is God blessed Elijah and took care of him. Now, that doesn't mean his life was easy or without incredible difficulty. It was. But we can say God blessed Elijah and took care of him. And what happened when the, the poor widow obeyed, even in the sour seasons? Well, what we know is that God blessed her by taking care of her and her family. And what we find when we choose to obey, even when it's hard, what we find is not that it restricts us and limits our freedom, but that, in fact, it enables us not only to survive, but also to thrive. And so the question becomes, do we trust God enough to obey him? And that brings us to our takeaway for today, and it's very simple. Trust God enough to obey him. In whatever area of your life where you need to, and you probably already know what it is, you probably immediately know where what's your money or your marriage or job. It's probably already on your mind. You probably already know where you're not trusting or obeying God. And so the challenge is make a decision today to follow God's directions today. Trust God enough to obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us enough 
to show us the best ways, the ways that are designed for your honor and for our thriving. Help us to trust you enough to obey and to follow your directions, to follow your ways. In Jesus' name, we pray. Pray this message has been a blessing to you. If we can pray for you or encourage you in any capacity, please let us know at FCCFM.org.